Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowley. In today's episode, we'll be talking about this weekend's South Australian state election. I have two guests today. My first guest is Hayden Manning. Hayden is an adjunct professor with the College of Business, Government and Law at Flinders University, where he taught Australian politics and history, voting behaviour and environmental politics for 35 years. Hello, Hayden. Good morning, Ben. Good to be here. My second guest is Matt Clemo. Matt is the Director of Social Policy Australia, was a Chief of Staff in the Rand and Wetherill Governments, and has just completed a term as Deputy Chair of the Committee for Adelaide. Hello, Matt. Happy Election Week, Ben. Thanks for coming. The South Australian Liberal Government currently holds 22 seats in the lower house, which is two seats short of a majority, with Labor on 19 seats. This election will be decided in a handful of marginal seats, so I thought we could talk about where those seats are likely to be. We haven't had a lot of polling, but the most recent poll did have Labor in the lead, suggesting they may be in a position to pick up Liberal seats and possibly come back into government. Matt, which seat jumps out to you as the most interesting? I think it has a pathway to government sense. Both sides of politics would say the Elder and King are the two that would allow a Premier to form a government. So I realise that's two rather than one, but uh, Elder and King are the two that um, are the pathway to government. And that's mainly because they're very marginal, but what kinds of seats are they? Well, they're almost um, diametrically opposed in an Adelaide sense. So Elder is, it's a southwestern seat. It's based around a very large shopping centre at Castle Plaza. It's been gentrified to a certain extent over time. Um, King is probably, it's it, it's the northeastern equivalent of it probably 10 years before. It's it's essentially the old seat of right, which is based around Golden Grove. Um, it was surprisingly lost by Labor last time, but is probably the hardest of the four that Labor needs to win for its pathway to government this time. Elder is the uh, southwestern seat. You've got a very, very popular Liberal member in Carolyn Power, running against Labor's Nadia Clancy, who ran in the federal election last time. Uh, it's probably where the, where the government would hope that Labor's closing of the Repat Hospital would bite the absolute most. Um, and it's the, it's, it's, it's the 23rd or the 24th seat that uh, Labor needs to form government. Yeah, so Hayden, um, what sort of voters live in these seats? Well, certainly an elder, it's middle class, well-heeled and a touch, I'd say, probably demographically older than King, which is more uh, your lower middle class, working class families. The one thing that comes to mind, I I totally agree with everything Matt said, is the old classic sophomore surge. Would that that help someone like Karen um, Powler and uh, the Liberal candidate in King, who slips my mind, who's that again? Paula Luthuin. That's Luthuin, that's right. Because uh, I'll probably need that if we're to believe what the news poll said and then my general sense, which actually news poll pleased me because it sort of befitted my general sense that Marshall's been draining votes in the second half of last year and it wasn't just the opening of the borders that people have been very critical of because of the case numbers going up. It's also the disunity factors. Um, so, yeah, I just wonder whether there's, there's a chance which those two incumbents have done all the things that we find with first-term MPs. They just work relentlessly in their communities and that shores them up. But they're clearly the, the two, along with Adelaide, that Labor have their sort of hearts and minds set on claiming. And are both Elder and King seats that um, the Liberal Party won off Labor last time? Yeah, so um, King King didn't exist before the last election. It was a safe Labor seat, which was redistributed um, and Labor lost. 
and Elder was lost last time by the first time by Annabelle Digance. Uh, Labor had held it since 97. Yeah, so they're both places where if you expected a bit of a sophomore surge effect that the the new MP has a new personal vote, those are the seats you could expect them to buck a trend in some way um, because the trend does appear statewide that the Liberals are not, like the Liberals are not on track for a rollicking landslide victory or anything like that, you know, that it looks like it could be close, but it would not be shocking if these seats had, you know, a smaller swing to Labor or even a swing to the Liberals that, could diverge from the rest of the state, which is often something that helped Labor out in close contests when they were in lasting government. Ben, I think that's interesting because I always reflect on the 2010 and indeed 14 campaigns when it looked like Labor in real trouble. But what was the story afterwards? It was the marginal seat ground war campaign, which is hellish for us commentators really to get a handle on because we're not there. You know, we don't know how many volunteers are out there. We don't know the level of enthusiasm for the volunteers. I mean, I remember Tom Kenyon said to me, um, this is after his defeat in 2018, about success with defending and winning Newland so marginal. He put about 50, I think he had 50, 60,000 of his own money into the campaign. So apart from party resources, he'd done fundraising. So it gives you that perspective. It's not just money, it's it's volunteers, it's enthusiastic volunteers, and it's hard to gauge. I mean, it's possible that a lot of the Liberal Party volunteers aren't bobbing up. They're a bit you know, bemused by how the government's travelled in the last six months or a year and, and aren't there, but I don't know. Labor currently holds 19 seats in real terms. They hold There's 19 Labor MPs in the lower house. They won 19 at the last election. There is a 20th seat, which I have as notionally Labor, but it's basically a dead heat that's a Liberal seat, which is Newland, which we'll get back to in a minute. Probably can't count Newland for them. It's basically a tie. But Flory, which is currently a marginal independent seat, that independent is running somewhere else. So that is basically a Labor seat. So that's 20 seats for Labor. So Labor needs four more on top of that to win government. Um, and those four, we've talked about two of them, and the other two that are worth mentioning are Adelaide and Newland. So maybe we treat those one at a time. We'll get to Newland because Newland could, could take a while. But anyone want to jump in about Adelaide? Adelaide was Labor's path to government in 2002. Um, a very popular Lord Mayor, Jane Lomax-Smith, won the seat of Adelaide, which is what got Labor to 23, and then with the help of independent Peter Lewis eventually formed government. Jane Lomax-Smith, quite surprisingly, lost that seat um, in 2010, whilst Labor was able to hold on to a Rachel Sanderson, who's seen as an you know, excellent local member um, on the ground and certainly had a, a sophomore surge beyond that. My view of the four would be now that Adelaide's the first domino to fall. Um, and I'm, there's certainly been a whole lot of Liberal commentators who have almost conceded that in the... In, in the last fortnight. So Labor's pathway to government starts with Adelaide as being the 21st seat. And then Newland. So I'll talk about Newland for a sec. Newland is a was already a marginal Liberal seat with about a 2% margin. Um, Anthony Green has it as a very, very slim Liberal seat. I have a very slim Labor seat. Not sure it's really worth arguing over those details. It's basically a tie now. Um, but it has this extra factor, which is that this sort of Labor-leaning independent, she's ex-Labor um, independent, Frances Bedford, is moving to Newland from her seat of Flory, which um, if you're listening to this on Tuesday, on Monday I had a blog post looking at what has happened with Flory as it's changed because it's over two redistributions, it had shifted from where it had been 
for all of the time Bedford had held it, it had been pretty steady and it's moved so much that practically none of the seat in 2022 was in the seat in 2014. And so in the last redistribution, all of her better areas were moved into other seats. Unfortunately for her, they weren't all moved into one seat. They were kind of split up between a bunch, but Newland was the biggest one, and that's the one she's decided to run for, although she, there's still a big chunk of Newland that she doesn't, she's never represented. Um, but that's going to be an interesting one to watch because you've got a theoretical notional Labor seat with an incumbent Liberal MP, also a first-termer, so there could be a personal vote factor there, a seat that has been redrawn significantly but hasn't totally lost its old character. And then you have an independent Labor um, MP coming in and running who has previously represented big chunks of the western side of the electorate. So anyone want to jump in? What do you think is going to happen in Newland? Is it is it going to be one of those ones that we just focus on so much on election night? Well, it's certainly a crystal ball one. It's arguably the most interesting one and we won't probably have much of a handle on election night, alas. Uh, pity we don't count pre-polls on um, polling day. Anyway, um, I read one blog site that alluded me to something, and Matt might want to add more about Frances Bedford in a moment, that she apparently helps people regularly from outside of her old electorate of Flory. Apparently she pulls in volunteers from outside her old electorate of Flory. She's already got a a strong base of enthusiastic volunteers. And that made me pause and think, well, actually, you know, she may have a, a better chance than I had first figured, and I'd still rated it reasonable. And Matt, do you have a, a view on her, her capacity to get that campaign really moving in those new areas she's got a garner votes from? My view throughout, and it remains, despite every other commentator's view and the betting odds um, currently, that uh, Francis is more likely to win the seat than the Labor candidate. Um, I think Francis has had an extraordinary record largely based around the Modbury Hospital. Um, and if we look at the you know, success of Rebecca Sharkey in Adelaide and now Cregan and Ellis and everybody else, I think you know, it's, a, it's a very... Um, you know, it's a appropriate time for independence to be running against major parties and everything aligns for Francis in that seat. Um, looking at it the other way, um, Richard Harvey needs to get north of 45 primary to be alive. Um, otherwise, he's going to lose to one of the other two candidates. Well, I assume there'll be a dynamic in Newland where, you know, sometimes we see, you know, a seat where the Greens and Labor are competing with the Liberal. Probably the Liberal will make the top two and then there'll be a a fight between Labor and Bedford for who makes the other spot in the top two, right? There'll be a race for second. And then if they're relatively close to the Liberal, whichever of them comes second will probably win on the other's preferences. But maybe the Liberal can stay far enough ahead that they'll win anyway. You know, that that does happen on occasion as well. So I suspect that will be the kind of dynamic we have. It won't just be that we won't have pre-poll votes, but whatever two-candidate preferred count we got on election night may be right or might not. And actually, we're kind of a bit more interested in the three-candidate preferred, which is not a thing that gets calculated on election nights. My view is uh, the, the Liberal MP in Newland would have to exceed the state Liberal primary vote in order to be enough in front to, to not get overtaken by the sum of the second and the third candidate. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I quickly flipped to the 18 result. What was his primary vote, Harvey? It was 36.6. Now, bearing in mind, SA Best, 16% in the seat. So 
we haven't mentioned this, I best aren't you know, in the mix this time, and that's, of course, a bit of a conundrum to work out. But, Matt, if you're saying 45% primary would be your benchmark, and fair enough, uh, that, that looks like a bit of a tall ass, frankly, at the moment, if we're you know, reading the mood correctly. Um, and as you say, it's who, who bobs up second uh, will probably get enough preferences to get over the line. When I calculated my redistribution, his vote dropped from 36.6 to 33.9. And that involved an increase in the total independent vote from like 1.5 to 7 because a, a chunk of Bedford's vote got brought in. So that's that's obviously factored in. But like you said, it also reduced the SA Best vote and to a lesser extent reduced the Labor vote. So um, that's the vote he got in the old electorate without Bedford around. Um, but that SA Best vote will be a factor. Maybe we should talk a bit more about them more generally and their absence that they got a significant chunk of the primary vote in a lot of seats and um, they have just vanished. Um, um, but, yeah, I, 45 seems like it would be hard for him. But, you know, if if 5% of or 8% of that 16% SA Best vote um, go back to the Liberals, then you would expect his, his vote to surge. In the, in the absence of Bedford, you'd expect his vote to surge significantly. I think one question that will be interesting will be, is there some people who... Um, I know that we see Bedford as a centre-left, ex-Labor, probably Labor-aligned independent, but there may be some people who are willing to vote for her, who switch from Liberal to her, who like the idea of voting for an independent, who wouldn't have voted for her if she was a Labor candidate. And so that increases the total sum of the vote between Labor and Bedford than what Labor would have gotten on their own if Bedford wasn't running. I suspect she won't just get Labor votes from Labor. And just to sum that up in that macro sense, one, as we all know, Voters aren't as rusted on. So for a Liberal to be casting around for an independent, and of course there the story is both in state and national, isn't it, that independents are now taken seriously. And, and if they get over the line, they can offer, uh, you know, for many voters a lot more than the party, you know, the party MP. So quite agree, Ben, that Liberals could indeed look to Bedford um and drop their vote that way. One thing that that reminded me of as well is that we we have yeah we have a lot of independents running at a federal level. There's a lot of these independents running. There's a Voices candidate running in Boothby, but not that much of it's happening in South Australia. And there is a certain amount of taking them more seriously. You know, some of them probably won't do that well, but they're all being taken seriously as a possible factor. There aren't that many independents running in South Australia, but I can imagine that for those that do run, it does kind of add a little bit to their credibility and their seriousness. Um, yeah, so that's that's uh, Newland. Um, those are the kind of conventional four. You know, they if you look at the pendulum, they're the only ones that have margins under about two point one percent. You do have a couple. Let's briefly touch on maybe a few. If there's any ones that you want to touch on that are a little bit safer liberal seats, we've got Colton on six point one, Hartley on six point five, Dunstan seven point one, Wait. We'll get back to Wait um, on seven point three. And hasten on seven point five. Are there any of those ones? If we're just talking straight Liberal Labor fights that are a little bit safer that you think are worth keeping an eye on, Labor needs to win those four conventional seats to form twenty four. And the problem uh, before polling for the last six months was there was such an enormous gap to the next seats uh, to the next seats in line that there was no pathway to government. Um, Labor would now be talking about. Davenport as being the possible option, as being 25th. There's a highly popular mayor of Onkaparinga, Aaron Thompson, running against Steve Murray, who's not a highly known um, Liberal, uh, currently in incumbent backbencher. 
um, there there has been, I'd say, some pretty spurious polls about Dunstan, about the Premier losing his seat, which I think we can roll off. Um, yeah, beyond that, you get to the seats of Gibson and Black, which have been enormously popular for Corey Wingard and uh, David Spears, um, who are both senior ministers in the government. And I don't think there's any realistic conversation about those going. So Davenport would be the only straight Labor Liberal option that fell beyond the, the first four. Assuming her campaign is again the old thing, full of enthusiastic volunteers and there's plenty of money in it as well. Erin Thompson, the mayor of Onkapringa, a council that had been in the news for a lot of the wrong reasons before she won the mayoral election. And she wasn't even on council, so she came out of the blue. Uh, I lived down that way until a year ago. Uh, from what I can gather, it's a fair point. I don't think mayors are often very popular, but certainly she's been seen as doing a pretty good job. So if this would be one of those surprises where a Liberal seat falls that's really looking, you know, safe, uh, it could well be Davenport. Just an interesting side note, her uh, campaign is being run by Nat Cook, who's a... Um... Uh, a very, very popular kind of grassroots campaigner who's the uh, Shadow Minister for Human Services and is the member for the adjoining seat of Hurtle Vale. Those are the conventional classic seats that uh, could be of interest. I want to also touch on as well, before we move on, to there are three ex-Liberal independents in the in the House. Uh, all three of them are running. At least one of them at some point claimed to be retiring, but they're all running again. Um Two of them are in pretty safe seats. The third one's in a kind of a relatively safe seat weight, which we just mentioned before. The other one's Narunga has an 18% margin in a Liberal Labor two-party preferred sense, and uh, and Cavill has a 14.6% margin. But if um, so, so Labor's not going to be competitive in those seats. Um, but um, it will be interesting how those independents go. Do we have any sense of? Are they are they serious contenders? Do they have a strong profile in their seats? Do we do we think? I mean, it seems likely that at least one of them will have a shot of getting re-elected. But that's going to be a real thorn in the side of the Liberals if they're going to want to win a majority. They're either going to have to grab all those seats back, or they're going to have to pick up other seats off Labor. Just on weight, you'd fancy it. It'll end up being a contest between Dulick and Hyde. From what I've gleaned, Dulick's running a pretty good campaign and and does have enthusiastic volunteers. But you just fancy there's enough you know, pretty bad press for him uh, over the last 18 months that um, he'd struggle to get over the line. And even say he did, I think he's among those liberal independents you'd fancy would find it all but impossible to back um, Labor into into office. I mean, notwithstanding his animosities toward his, a number of his liberal moderate colleagues, you'd, you'd say either way. Labor can't look at getting a number on the floor uh, if they need it from Wade. The interesting thing about Wade is outside of Stewart, I'd say it's the most interesting seat in the state in that it's such a crowded contest. You've got uh, Heather Holmes-Ross, who's the mayor, um, running as well. You've got probably a solid 8 to 10% Green vote, and then you've got Labor, and then you've got an ex-Lib, and then you've got a current Lib. So um, it's going to be such a crowded race to get to second as 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 a green vote goes to Labor first, and then it goes to Julak, and again, Hyde's Hyde's going to have to be significantly in front um, in order to hold on. And I think, unlike the other three 
liberal independence in terms of Cregan, Bell and Ellis, you know, weight is a is a real contest and will probably be the last seat to be known, in my view. Do you uh, write Holmes Ross as a, a chance there, Matt? I think she has a very significant local independent vote. I'd be surprised if there's any part of weight in Mayo, but it's not it's not geographically far apart and the kind of success of Sharkey and I think the I think the overall tone of this election being, you know, what has your major party done for you recently as opposed to what has your independent done for you recently. I think particularly those who aren't inclined to vote for Sam as an independent um, I think there is probably a solid 10 to 12% for the local mayor. But that's how I would have put it, something like, yeah, 10, 15, but nowhere in that 20 area where you'd say she could, you know, hang on an account and finally get there by a handful of votes. Absolutely, but it's where it goes because, I mean, if it, if it kind of inexplicably goes to Labor first as well as the Green, the uh, reality is that Sam's going to get hired elected because he's going to run third. Um, you know, he needs he needs to stay ahead of that Labor candidate after everybody else has been exhausted. Otherwise, he's just going to get uh, his uh, former mate elected. This is another example of the ongoing theme we're having, that we're having a lot more contests that are not straight two-person races. You know, even if there's, a, there's only two people who could win, there's often a third or a fourth candidate who have a chance of coming in the top two, and it really complicates things. You know, we, we all know theoretically how preferences get distributed, but... Um, when it's when it's just straight Labor and Liberal, um, it really simplifies things, and you can usually just think about preferences flowing to one or the other. But at this point, this is another race, like what we were talking about with Newland, where you know if you have Dulac and and Labor, for example, in a in neck and neck for a second, um, I would imagine that would be a kind of an asymmetrical preference situation, right? If he can stay ahead of Labor, maybe I don't know, I don't know where Labor preferences flow, but um, um, you know, he's not going to give labour labour preferences in rever- in in return. Fair. I mean, if you look at it in the, in the other way, that a, a traditional two party Newland contest um, makes it unwinnable for Labour. I mean, it, it is only the insertion of of the third um, contender that allows it to happen. So. I feel like this is a bit of a, a theme that keeps coming up in every election for the last two years, but the COVID pandemic has meant. We're seeing a lot more people vote early um, and we're starting to see stats on, you know, we still have a week of voting to go, but I'm looking here at Anthony Green's numbers from Monday morning that 6.8% of voters have cast a pre-poll vote so far and um, this compares to about 10% of voters had cast a pre-poll vote in 2018. So considering usually there's more in the last week, it looks like there'll be more than there was last time, but it's not massively more. You know, we're not talking about 30 or 40%. Um, then we also have 11.8% of voters have applied for a postal vote. That compares to 68 in 2018. Um, this is this is pretty similar to what the final figure will be. There might be a few more applications. And about 800 postal votes have been returned, but that that's expected. Not many have been returned. So we're looking at at least some of those postal voters might not return their postal ballot, but at the moment we're talking maybe 19 to 20, like minimum 8, 19% voting early. Maybe it gets up as high as 25, 30%. That's a bit low for the COVID era, but still pretty high. Um, one other thing to note, and then you guys can jump in if you want on this point. Uh, South Australia stands alone as the only place that still treats your ordinary run-of-the-mill pre-poll vote as a 
as a as a declaration vote, as in it has to go in an envelope and has to be checked before it gets counted, which means we will get see no pre-poll votes get counted on the night. It's not unusual that postal votes don't get counted on the night, but in most other jurisdictions, including federal, we now see at least the local ordinary standard boring pre-poll vote gets counted on the night, and we won't see that in South Australia. So unless the trend is really strong and clear, I think we might come out of the night. We might be, like with these state by-elections we had in New South Wales, we might come out of the night saying, we think this is the trend, but we're not really sure until these pre-polls get counted. It does make it a bit easier, though, that the number of pre-polls doesn't seem to be massively larger than it was last time. And that's a bit of a surprise because all the talk has been it's going to be a huge pre-poll. And at the moment, it's just curious then, does that say then, I mean, this is really reading some tea leaves, I think, that the feeling that all people have been very unimpressed with Marshall opening the borders and are desperately worried still about COVID actually is dissipating evidence. They're not turning up for the pre-poll as all the talk was a month ago. Now, if that's true, then that helps the government a little. I mean, is it enough? We won't know until we've got the votes counted. But um, it's a bit of a surprise to me, as I'm saying in a nutshell, all the talk was record pre-poll. It's going to be through the roof. People are still fearful of COVID. Well, so far, that hasn't been borne out. Every person obsessed with this stuff as much as we are um, would have been adamant that you'd have a less than 50% election day voter turnout and you'd have a combination of pre-poll and postals before that. And it just hasn't borne out. Um, I thought Thursday night might have been the largest kind of late night voting scenario and that and that just wasn't the case. And I think if there is a kind of fill-up or a, a optimism for the government going into the last week, it will be the lack of early pre-poll numbers saying that there is there's certainly no kind of baseball bat analogy there. Now, we do expect there'll be more pre-poll votes this week than there was last week. And uh, we're recording on Monday morning, so we're basically at the start of week two of voting. Um so it will end up being more than it was last time. It's not exponentially more. It's not of a step change. And that story we had back in January, you know, hospitalizations were going up, deaths were going up. Was, you know, that's what's like with COVID on the news all the time. He was, and, and of course, the critique turned, open the waters too early, Premier, blah, blah. Well, you know, maybe, maybe it's just uh, dissipating, washing out somewhat as we're seeing, you know, the pre-poll's not going through the roof. As Matt said, it was thought half of us would post or pre-poll. So the highest early voter turnout in terms of combination of pre-poll and requested postal is the seat of Finnis, which is the seat around Victor Harbour, and that's at 29.7% already. So that will end up somewhere near 45, which will be significantly higher, but you kind of imagine the rest of the state's going to end up in the high 30s, somewhere near there. And, of course, that's a, a, probably the electorate with the oldest age profile you'd figure um, in the state. At the last South Australian election, we had SA Best, who ran in a lot of seats, Nick Xenophon's party. They they actually polled really well for a minor party. They polled 14.2% in the lower house, which is a bit low for a Nick Xenophon statewide performance. But I think it is a different question when you're running in the lower house, when it's in most seats you're not voting for him personally. And I thought it was quite a respectable result. But... It was quite evenly distributed, and in the end, they didn't win any seats. Um, they made the top two in a few, but um, they didn't win any of them. But that does mean there's a big chunk of the electorate that voted for them last time, and this time around, they're running in one lower house seat, they're running in the upper house, 
Um, maybe they can win an upper house seat. I'm not sure. Xenophon's no longer associated with them or active at the moment. Um, Matt, I'll jump to you. Do you have any sense of where those voters might go? I think the government's big problem going into this election is that they've had 16 years of campaigning against a government. And I think the explanation of the SA Best vote last time was you even had Labor voters who put their vote to SA Best and then it ended up with a Liberal candidate and then kind of got them over the line. I think they're quite unaccustomed as much as anything else to campaigning to holding government. And a lot of the um, battles they have, particularly with their own independence, are... Um, they don't have an option for anyone to park their vote with somebody else and then return it to the government. And I think that's probably the largest hurdle they have to overcome. I think you've touched on something really interesting there, Matt. Not quite getting what it is to defend your government. And I guess that struck me with Marshall. You know, I compare Marshall to the likes of Iran or Weatherall. I mean, they could turn it on nasty when it was time to really get stuck into your opponent, the opposition leader, who, after all, is always coming off the back foot. Most voters don't know who he or she is. I mean, as an aside, of course, Malinowskis got a fair old rap when he took his shirt off in the pool with his kids. I mean, that certainly, that got a few people tuning in on, who's that guy? Oh, he's a Labour leader. Oh, he could be the next Premier. Anyway, putting putting that aside, that's, in, in a sense, which just struck me, there's something rather pedestrian at times about the likeable, affable, what did the Prime Minister call him, Mr Smiley, our Premier, Stephen Marshall. He just hasn't, in my book, battered strongly enough for his government and turned on the nasty, you know, when required, to beat up the opposition leader. Take the seat of Adelaide as an as an example. Um, you know, government governments are generally quite unpopular in the seat of Adelaide. You've got a whole lot of planning decisions. You've got a whole lot of development decisions. My view would be the seat of Adelaide is the hardest seat to hold as a government MP, um, and as an opposition MP, you know, it's not it's not that harder. Hard a gig, you get to complain about everything the government does and represent your constituents well. All of a sudden, when you're in government and you have unpopular decisions in the parklands and development, etc., I think what has struck me more than anything else during this campaign is the capacity of government MPs to campaign for the re-election of a government as opposed to campaign for the re-election of themselves as a representatives in their seat. And I think if we do see a rubber band breaking this week and surprise kind of results, um, it will be that lack of capacity to defend and to promote the government's record as opposed to where we currently are, which is kind of Labor bad, Liberal good, vote for us um, without kind of much substance underneath that. Well, I suppose one thing that struck me very early, um, in fact, I was driving out of Adelaide right up through to Port Augusta, and it was on the Saturday, the core flutes had gone up. And I, I observed this core flute in Port Augusta, and I, what's that? What do you want? Basketball stadium or health, or whatever the words were. And I thought, oh, who's that? And I labour. Now, of course, if you're talking about the cut-through campaign message, for mine, it's just that simple let's really critique the big spend of what is over half a billion on a, a stadium entertainment centre uh, and say all that money will go to the hospitals, knowing that you know, ramping health is a huge issue. So I thought early on they've got that right, Labor, 
And if it transpires, they win a majority in their own right or manage to get the independence there. To mine, it would be singular, among many issues, but that particular targeting of a message from the very beginning of the campaign was a winner. I think it understandably is uh, infuriating to the government and to the Premier's office how many times the opposition can uh, profess to spend that $662 bucks. But um, you know, it's a very clean political message um, and, it's, and it works in the regions, it works in the city. Um, you know, it's a, it has been the entire theme of the campaign is spend the basketball stadium money on health. Even if you look past the 2PP in that news poll, um, you've got Peter Malinowskis on 21 points favourable in that in that, in that news poll. Um, outside of taking his shirt off, I think it's the basketball stadium and health. If there are significant swings in Adelaide, Elder, King and Newland, you uh, end up in a scenario where the Liberals have to win something back. Um, Mawson would be their first call to um, defeat Leon Bignall, who was elected in 2006 and has surprisingly um, been able to hold on at every election since that. Uh, if you get to that and you talk to the Liberal Party HQ, they would be talking about uh, defeating Jane Stinson in, in the seat of Badco or uh, even the Shadow Treasurer, Stephen Mulligan, in the seat of Lee. But um, you are talking about a long way down the pendulum and against the tide for there to be any pathway for the Liberals to gain a seat outside of independence at this election. And that's about it for this episode of the Tallyman Podcast. Thank you, Matt and Hayden, for joining me. Thanks, Matt. Thank you so much, Ben. And thanks, Hayden. It's been great, great fun. Uh, so my complete guide to the South Australian election is available at www.tallyroom.com.au slash SA2022. I'll be covering the results on Saturday night, so please join me for that. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.